You tuned in to the Kojo Namdi show on WAMU 88.5, where I'm broadcasting from my living room in Washington, D.C. So, welcome. Earlier this week, we held our latest Kojo in Your Community event via Zoom. The topic this time, Neighbors Helping Neighbors. It's part of our Kojo Connect series, this month focused on economic inequality. WMU's Ali Schweitzer assisted me by moderating and sharing the questions from the attendees. A quick programming note. Our next Kojo in Your Community will be on February 16th. Details on that event will soon be posted to wamu.org slash events. So look out for that. And a reminder, today's show is pre-taped, so we won't be taking calls or reading your questions or comments from social media during the broadcast. Enjoy. Many local nonprofit organizations faced challenge when the pandemic hit. Like a lot of people, they took a financial hit. They also had operations disrupted, and at the same time, thousands more area residents found themselves in dire need of their help, whether because of lost income or as essential workers on the front lines. Many local nonprofits found ways to step up, creating networks of care, helping the government scale up assistance, and directing corporate donations to where they were needed most. And many ordinary individuals responded creatively and compassionately as well with everything from informal food pantries to exchanges of goods and services. So, how are these support organizations faring today? And how can you step up to help those in need, regardless of your financial situation? So, welcome to Kojo in Your Community, Neighbors Helping Neighbors. I'm Kojo Namdi. Joining us now... Tonya Wellens, the president and CEO of the Greater Washington Community Foundation, a public charity organization that's been helping D.C. area communities since 1973. She joins us from her home in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Tonya Wellens, thank you for joining us. Hi, Kojo. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Walter Smith is the executive director of the D.C. Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, a nonprofit organization founded in 1994 that's dedicated to solving public policy problems facing the D.C. capital region. He joins us from his office in Northwest D.C. Walter Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo. Tony Wellens, I'll start with you. What is the Greater Washington Community um, Foundation and what is its mission? Thanks, Kojo. So the Community Foundation envisions a greater Washington region that is equitable, just, and enriching place for people to live, work, and thrive. And we're able to accomplish that by providing community leadership, inspiring local giving, promoting civic engagement, and guiding strategic philanthropy. Uh, I'll say through through the course of the, the pandemic, we've acted as a community quarterback by helping to shepherd both individual and institutional gifts and then making them available to nonprofits in our community. You last joined us at the end of July for a virtual Kojo in your community. It was on the struggle of low-wage workers and the increase in need the greater Washington community was seeing. How have things been since then and has the need continued to increase? So that's interesting. Um, I'd say that... um, Things are, are, are a little bit better today than they were back in July. Um, you know, in July, we were still trying to sort, you know, um, the spread of the pandemic. Um, many restaurants and other uh, places were closing. Nonprofits were still struggling, uh, trying to figure out how to make their, um, their uh, to meet their bottom line. Uh, PPP loans were had just come out, but were still being uh, resolved and settled. So, so many things were still at play in July that I think have um, settled just a bit now. Um, nonprofits pivoted very nicely and very, very quickly to be able to respond to uh, to immediate needs. Uh, we, we really worked hard to get cash in the hands of workers who uh, who were unemployed or excluded and, and who needed it. Uh, pop-up food pantries, uh, as you mentioned, um, Kojo were established, mutual aid societies were organized, people really stepped up to help people then. Uh, and now, um, you know, we're still trying to sort some some of the same challenges and, uh, and I'd say some new challenges. Um, and we can talk about those through the course of, of this conversation. But some of the new challenges remain around, I'd say, distance learning. Uh, a lot of uncertainty around the about the future. You know, some jobs have returned and many have not. 
Uh, there's still the looming uh, challenge of evictions and eviction prevention. Um, and then food, I'd say food and food insecurity remains one of the biggest um, direct service challenges before us because of uh, a broad number of both needs and challenges in the, in the distribution system. Well, the last time you joined us, you also mentioned that the silver lining in all of this was the outpouring of giving from our communities, individuals, organizations, businesses. Has that level of giving continued throughout? It's changed. You know, um, surge giving in our region really, really responds well, both nationally and locally, to emergencies. When there is a crisis, we are uh, there, and I'm really proud of the way that our community responds. Uh, I will say that a lot of the surge giving has tempered. Um, we received so much of it. The, the, the really rough estimate is upwards of $40 million dollars in the first uh, four or five months of the pandemic were the, that's like the total that we received through the Community Foundation and we were able to disperse it really quickly. Uh, now our, I'd say that philanthropists and philanthropy are being a lot more deliberate uh, and thoughtful about kind of what they're investing in. They're trying to reassess what the needs are. Uh, there's a, a real strong interest in trying to balance, uh, understand what local government, state mm -hmm. government, and federal government investments will do and where the gaps are. And so I'd say that it has slowed, but there's still a commitment um, to, to making sure that our community remains, uh, remains shored up. Walter Smith, what is D.C. Appleseed's mission and why was it founded? Well, <clears throat> our mission is an ambitious one. We try to support people who live and work um, in the D.C. area. And our organization was started um, 26 years ago or something like that. Um, it was started by a bunch of pro bono lawyers who wanted to draw on the resources from professionals who would volunteer their time to help address some of the most pressing needs facing the city, which means that we've been involved in education, healthcare, democracy, the environment, um, gun safety, uh, criminal reform, almost every issue facing um, the city, um, we and our pro bono partners have been engaged in. How did your mission and how did your focus change when the pandemic began last March, Walter? Well, um, I'll echo some of what Tony said. Um, uh, all of a sudden, the needs of people who live and work in the city grew um, exponentially. And as part of that, one of the things we were asked to do was a request that came from the Community Foundation itself. We were asked to look specifically at what the needs were in the city of frontline workers. And we undertook to investigate that, again, working with pro bono partners. I would like to mention Hogan Lovells, Covington and Burling. And we interviewed widely. We talked to a lot of stakeholders. We talked to a lot of hospitals uh, and others who were part of working with frontline workers. And as Tonya knows, um, after three or four months, we issued a report laying out what was going on um, with the frontline workers. And if you let me continue a minute to what we then wanted to do to support the workers, it occurred to us because, as Tonya said, the pandemic has been changing. Uh, throughout the many months we've been facing it. And as the pandemic changed, the needs of the workers changed. It wasn't one size fits all. It depends on which kind of workers you were talking about. So we had the idea of trying to start an up-to-date clearinghouse website that uh, we partnered with Amazon to start this website. And the website was designed to do a couple of things. One was to provide in one place what all of the resources were available to the workers who needed help in some department, whether it was childcare or transportation or food or whatever it was. By category, we would show on the website what had been volunteered so far and others who wanted to volunteer resources could do so. But at the same time, we were interested in neighbors helping neighbors. We wanted to provide an opportunity for people who live and work in the city or in the region 
to make cash donations because one of the greatest needs that some of the workers have is for additional cash for all kinds of purposes. So we provided an opportunity for people just to make a cash donation to support the workers. And the way the website works is that the, the cash donations that come in, we channel directly to the other partners that we have on the ground who are themselves supporting the workers. I'm talking about Dream Center, uh, Martha's Table, uh, Mary's Center, the Leadership Council for Healthy Communities. We're directing the cash donations to them and they in turn then provide the support for the workers. And, and both of the things we're trying to do, Kojo, have worked out very well. There are a lot of resources available. More over time have become available. And we've heard from a lot of workers who have used the website to find what was available, mostly in the area of childcare, sometimes in the, in the area of mental health support. And we're being, we've been gratified by the fact that although Tonya gets millions of dollars for, from different <laughs> places, we were trying to focus on small donations from individuals. We're going to dig deeper okay. into that website, frontlineworkers.org. I would never stop talking org. if you hadn't interrupted me. Uh. You, and that, because I know you and because you're so comfortable at home, I realize now I'm going to have to interrupt you a, a lot more. Um, but briefly tell us, how do you define frontline workers? Uh, what a good question. Um, there are lots of different people have defined this differently. Um, we started off thinking of um, mostly healthcare workers, people in hospitals and hospital centers. But as we investigated, we found that a lot of people said, why are you limiting it to that? There are a lot of other people who are frontline, grocery workers, transportation workers, um, people working in childcare centers, uh, people working in long-term care centers. So the definition is broad. Kojo, by our count, there are almost 50,000 at least frontline workers, and we left it to our partners who are already serving these people to define exactly which of these workers was most in need to whom they could then channel the cash donations. Ali Schweitzer, you have a question for us? Yeah, Alexandra in Bethesda says, I have a company that helps people downsize. Often we have perfectly serviceable and quite nice furniture and household belongings for donation. The sticking point is always finding timely transportation and labor and organizations that can get these items into the stream as soon as possible. So Alexandra is asking, do the panelists have any thoughts on, on this type of donation? Tonya Wellens, thoughts? Sure. There are a number of nonprofits in our uh, region who are, you know, willing to accept uh, gently used donations, furniture, et cetera. And we can name some in the in the chat. They've been overwhelmed because people have been home and cleaning out their um, their homes and making the, making donations. But a number of good good organizations and Walter, you might have some specifically that are still accepting because many have had to slow down because of the overwhelming uh, number of gifts that have been offered. Yeah, I, I hope she'll go on our website so we can actually list what she has available. And then in turn, there will be workers who can go to the website to see if they wanted to access it. Any more, Allie? Yeah, we have one from Jean, uh, or Jean, I apologize, who, who says, in August, I knew that I wanted to make a significant difference in at least one life during COVID-19. At that time, the Washington Post ran an article on the Reddit Mutual Aid subgroup. Uh, that became a big avenue for me for helping outside of our D.C. area. Are the panelists familiar with this group or others like it where individuals post their immediate requests for help and needs? And are there other groups like this that the panelists would recommend to listeners? Walter? I would, I would urge uh, her to go to some of the people we are working with right now um, who are delivering um, services to the people most in need. Um, and there are a lot of them, but I'll just mention our partners are, are Martha's Table and Mary's Center and, and the Dream Center and the Leadership Council. And there are many others like that, Breath of the City. There are a number of organizations who are great conduits um, to provide um, resources that are brought to them and then in turn um, give those resources to those most in need. 
Tonya Wallens, people of color were disproportionately affected by the pandemic in terms of COVID infections and death rates, but also economically. Last month, U.S. employers cut over 140,000 jobs, and black and Latino women accounted for nearly all of the job losses, while white men and women gained jobs. How do we reverse those trends? We reverse those trends by being far more targeted in our services and in our investments. Um, I think it's go gone are the days where we can say we want to you know, support all communities. We really have to, to zero in on communities that are being disproportionately impacted uh, because they've been disproportionately sort of under-resourced or underserved over many, many generations. Uh, and I just think it's time for us to be, be brutally honest about that. Um, we will ne never really get to resolving an issue that we don't uh, face head on. Uh, I will say that we were very targeted in our COVID-19 response work. Um, we knew that uh, specific communities were going to be hit hard or harder than others. And we also knew that many nonprofits, particularly nonprofits that were led by people of color would also be hit uh, exceptionally harder. And so we made a, a, a deliberate decision to make sure that we were shoring up, focusing on and supporting both communities and organizations that were being, uh, that were led by, by, by people of color uh, with, with intention, um, giving them the support they need to provide direct services to uh, community. And at some point, Kojo, and you can tell me when, we do have some, some data points on some of the impact because it's really important that we, not, that we talk about both the Uh, the giving that was done, which we, we, we were pretty excited about, really excited about, but also some of the impact that we're seeing of, of, of some of that giving. So you tell me when I can talk to that. At some point usually means I'm ready to talk about this now. <laughs> Whenever you like. <laughs> so, 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 so please go ahead. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, 57% of the grants that were uh, issued were issued to organizations that were led by people of color. We estimate that we served over 240,000 people in our region. Uh, about 6,000 of them received pro bono legal services. Close to 4,000 received domestic and community violence support services. A little over 1,000 shelter and housing. Nearly 300,000 meals or food boxes were distributed. 40,000 people were provided with emergency cash assistance. Uh, 100,000 people provided remote learning supports and nearly $2 million in PPE units were purchased to support frontline workers in our region. Like that's what those dollars translated to. Like that's what, that's what gets me really excited about how our community responded. Uh, but it also is telling about kind of the, the path that we have ahead. You know, we can't treat this pandemic like it's over. We're, we're still in the middle of it. But I'm really, I really wanted to celebrate uh, the work of our nonprofit community uh, that was fueled by uh, both individual and institutional donors in our region. Walter Smith, what did you discover about the biggest needs of the essential workers and how has that changed throughout the pandemic? And can you talk about the response you've been seeing across the region in terms of people wanting to help donating money, goods, time? Well, I think the response has been good so far. I want it to be great. Um, as Tonya said, um, the supporters come in waves um, uh, as the pandemic has changed. Um, uh, but, but the needs of the frontline workers have stayed significant. Um, and some of the categories where the needs seem to be greatest are childcare um, support, um, actually mental health services support um, is a great need. Transportation um, can be a great need. And, and just building on something that Tony said a minute ago, not only are people of color being disproportionately hit by the pandemic. But you should know that the frontline workers here in the District of Columbia are 61% black. And a significant number of these people are low income people who have been working every day uh, uh, in stressful situations where a lot of folks were much better off are working remotely and have not been hit nearly as hard. And those are the people who need to be making contributions. Can I, can I give the, the name of our website here? Is this the time to say where people could go? 
to make contributions? Absolutely not. No, go, oh. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> FrontlineWorkersDC.org. One word. FrontlineWorkersDC.org. Uh, if you need something, go there. If you can offer something, go there. Ellie Schweitzer? I have a really great question from Gretchen in Hill East who asks, uh, actually, it's a comment and a question. I appreciate the role of social service organizations, but my question is about government. I've lived in D.C. for over a decade, and I really want to understand better how to advocate for better local services and programs. We have a democratically-led city. I think that's Democrat with a capital D. But I have not seen a commitment to affordable and equitable housing and economic development, Gretchen says, living wages for all workers and police reform. How can I help my neighbors and effectively advocate for a more equitable and just government? Well, you know, one of the people who I, I think founded the D.C. Appleseed Center was one Ralph Nader. And if that is correct, Walter Smith, that is an example of activism that you can build on in response to that question. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, if that lady wants to contact us um, about trying to get involved, she can do that. Um, I'm happy to talk to her. I'm happy to direct her to other organizations, as, as Tonya knows. There are lots and lots of advocacy organizations here in the District of Columbia trying to move this city forward in the areas that I just heard Ali mention. Um, there, I think the city has come a long way on a lot of those programs, but, but there is still a, a, a long way to go. And I should add, since this program is about the pandemic, the pandemic has hit the district government also. Um, the district government has taken an enormous hit in its own revenue, which has forced it to make hard choices with regard to the areas where they devote their own government services, which again is why we're here to talk about private citizens, businesses, foundations, and others step up to the plate now to help fill the gap. Another one, Ali Schweitzer. Anna in Northwest Washington asks, I'm looking for ways to serve the community. I don't have a car or much disposable income, but I am able to dedicate my time. What would the panelists suggest for people like me? Tonya Wellens? Sure. I'd say uh, the, the Mayor's Office on Volunteer Service, I think it's called Serve DC. Uh, it's run by a good friend uh, in, the, in the district. They are always looking for ways to match uh, people who are interested in volunteers with volunteer uh, opportunities. I'd also offer a number of the, uh, the, the food banks who are, again, still looking for volunteers because of the demand for distribution, food banks and food distribution centers around the entire region. But Serve DC should be a go-to um, for this caller. Tonya, throughout this pandemic, we've seen individuals stepping up, neighbors helping neighbors, creating networks of care in their communities. How important have people like that been to those in need? Hugely important. Um, you know, I think it just speaks to just, a, you know, in the time of so much political turmoil, um, it has been heartening to see neighbors just really wanting to, uh, particularly those who have, uh, who have access to resources, who were able to maintain their jobs, or who did really well because the stock market performed very well for those who were invested, uh, to be able to make their um, uh, disposable income available to disposable income and time uh, available to those who were in need. Again, mutual aid societies and uh, communities of faith, um, you know, regular neighbors just kind of pooling their efforts and tools and resources together were, I think, a huge benefit. And, and not just for what they were able to do, um, but also for the sort of the esprit de corps, the, the spirit of, uh, of community, which people need. Many people suffered from loneliness and isolation um, during this time. And so the sort of the helping hand or the extra cash uh, really helped to bridge uh, a number of, of both social emotional gaps uh, alongside uh, economic and um, basic need gaps. Let's go back to FrontlineWorkersDC.org, the website you created with help from Amazon, the D.C. government, and others. As you mentioned, a kind of clearinghouse for all the resources available to the frontline workers. Um, 
And you mentioned, you gave out the name of the website, and people have been showing interest in that website. But how did Amazon and the D.C. government help to create it and are helping to maintain that frontline workers, dc.org website? Well, Amazon um, worked very closely with us to set up the website. Um, uh, they were a great partner with us, helped us design it, helped us to get it rolling. Um, uh, the D.C. government was not part of getting it rolling, although the mayor did endorse it. Um, we, we talked to the mayor and her people early on about what we were going to do. Um, and since then, uh, the website went live um, Thanksgiving week in November, and we have volunteers, um, a whole bunch of them from our pro bono law firms, who are maintaining the website so that um, as people go on the website, if they have questions, if they want to know about resources, if someone wants to volunteer new resources, um, this is our way of, of keeping the thing completely up to date um, as needs change, as resources become available. So it's been a great interactive um, but real-time operation. Who has been contributing, individuals or businesses, and what is the average amount donated? It's nearly all individuals. Um, and um, the average is around, because we've got several in the thousands, the average um, is around 250. But um, the, the majority of the contributions um, are small, $100 or less, um, which means two things. One is we're not going to have millions of dollars. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's a great opportunity for people who can't afford a lot but want to give a little to go on the website and give a small amount because given the needs of the workers, even small amounts for workers in great need, a small amount of money can do a lot of good. Joining us now is Fanny Lasky-Salazar, a volunteer in Herndon, Virginia, and a patch local hero. She's one of those individuals who stepped up in her community. She joins us from her home in Herndon, Virginia. Fanny, welcome. You work part-time at the Metropolitan Washington Area Airport Authority, and you're a full-time parent. Heroic jobs, no doubt, but it was your volunteer work that got you recognized as a patch local hero. When the pandemic began and people were being laid off or had their hours reduced, what did you do? And I, I was thinking when the pandemic started, how I can make the difference? I started walking in the street and thinking, who I reach out? And in the corner where we live in Hardong, Virginia, I found a, a truck was there giving food away. And I said, oh, wow, that's a sign. <laughs> so I went there and I said, oh, do you need help for volunteers? I speak Spanish too. So that was Moving um, for Hope. And I start volunteer. It just, it just being amazing. Be me help, uh, be able to help families, really. Um, we have a group of great friends and here we get together and we see what we can do. And we have a good organization around the area, Cornerstone, uh, She Believed in Me, Link, Church. The school is very resourceful here. So um, so much things we can do, be done. You are a frontline volunteer. You're talking directly to neighbors, talking directly to people in your community. What sorts of things are people in need of right now? Oh, my God, it's a, it's a lot of things they need right now, <laughs> what they don't need. Special rent, the special, they're very, very struggling to pay rent at this moment because they lose a job at this moment. People, people can go ask for a box of food and they give it to them. But it's a family here living in a small bedroom's apartment. Even they give it box of food, they're not able to go cook the meals in the kitchen. So they, it's a single mothers. I've been focused very, very single mothers. Diapers, they need diapers. They need, they, they need so much stuff, simple stuff. So we give it cups, coats away. We give it clothes away. We give it food away. But like I said, sometimes we forgot. Sometimes we forgot the ones they live in a small room, big family. Special, they can have a lot of, a lot of supermarkets in here. But if we have a family, five members, three children, 
DAO, Mind, Picture, it's too expensive for them to go to a supermarket. We've been hearing a lot about selfless acts, and it is my understanding that you did not ask for presents for your birthday <laughs> last year. So what did you ask for? I ask for donations every year for my birthday, for a school and private organizations. Because so I'm sorry. that was not just that was that that was not just last year, huh? No, <laughs> no. That is something we do together. Always happily about teamwork. I have a group of friends, and always I reach out to them. Thank you so much because I know they can hear me. <laughs> Thank you so much because our dance really, really, we can do this. I can do this by myself. Always I reach to people. Oh, I'm, I'm very proud of this organization because she believed in me. It's created by a teacher for a counselor, Ms. Renee Gorman. And we made sure, we made sure we knock the door and we leave the food outside and we keep in touch and cornerstone. And, you know, it's just amazing. We can make the difference. Do you have any idea how many people and families you have helped since March of last year? I don't count really how many families, but I think it's a lot. It's a lot. When you volunteer, you don't think about it. I'm very passionate about it. If you need something and you tell family, come here, because sometimes in the weekends is no organization available Sundays. They call me and they say, Fanny, uh, do you know where I can get food? I reach out to the pantry in Cornerstone and they say, okay, come to get the food. So I will make sure that family get food. I can go sleep really if I can make the difference and think about, wait a minute, this today is a kid is not gonna have food. I can't go sleep. <laughs> so I wake up, I wake up everybody, my husband, and I said, let's go. <laughs> Ali Swice, you've got a couple of more questions for us. Well, we actually have a couple of folks who wanted to share with us what they've been doing to help their neighbors during this time. So I, I want to share this this one anecdote from Anne in Mount Pleasant. That's in Northwest DC. Uh, I've been working with a great group of neighbors, this is Anne, in Mount Pleasant. Uh, it's called Mount Pleasant Neighbors Helping Neighbors. If folks in the neighborhood want to write that down. It has volunteers to help neighbors with transportation, with shopping, et cetera, but ended up addressing the largest need, which was food aid. And Mount Pleasant Neighbors Helping Neighbors, Anne says, has provided food for 800 families a week. And we had another nice story here from Jennifer in Montgomery County, who says, in Up County, Montgomery County, we started an organization called Community Farm Share. People can donate money to buy local vegetable farm CSA shares. That's community-supported agriculture, for those of you who don't know. The full amount of the donors' funds goes to the farms, and the actual produce is delivered weekly to families in our communities facing food insecurity. It's a win-win. Neighbors in need receive nutritious, fresh produce. Local farms are supported, and the donors have the opportunity to support two important causes with one donation. So these are some of the great things that we're hearing from folks in the community tonight. Tonya Willens, there continues to be a lot of people in need in our region and across the country with no real end in sight. But you and the greater Washington community can't help everyone. How frustrating, how disheartening is that for you? It's a challenge, um, you know, because I think Fanny is noting the need. The callers who are sharing what they're doing are in community are noting the need. Um, I want to say that you know, someone mentioned how can we advocate for, you know, local government to do more. Our local governments in this region, again, have also done a fantastic job. I mean, there there is far more need than there are resources just generally. Uh, I think both the mayor's response has been uh, been admirable, along with the county executives and around the, the entire region in terms of what they're able to do. Um, but this, this was a pandemic that we did not... Um, <laughs> anticipate, plan for, um, and it just shows how thin margins are across all sectors, I'd say, um, in this entire community, including the private sector, who have also, who has also stepped up in, in important and amazing ways. Um, a number of the, the restaurants, even as they were closing down, pivoted to be able to provide, you know, food service in a philanthropic way, um, they used their workers where they could to volunteer around meal preparation and distribution. So I, I think, you know, everyone is doing the best that they can. I really cannot um, offer too many, uh, too many complaints about how we're responding. It's just not enough. And, and you're absolutely right, Kojo. 
the uh, the end is not uh, very the end of this is not just it's just not very clear. And and with that, I think that there are some things that we can predict that will be you know, you know going back to quote unquote normal. But some things are going to stay with us for a, 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 a little while longer. I mean, I think the full recovery of the economy is not something that's going to be back to normal in six months. Uh, there are, you know, issues around, I'd say, broadband access, return to school, um, childcare, as many, Walter has, has mentioned many times now. Those things are still going to be needs that people in our community will, will, will still have as the, as the economy slowly returns. I mean, again, COVID put a bright light on many of the ex existing issues in our community and in our region. And it's going to be up to us that we not go back to the same um, situation that we left in a, in a, in, in a pre-COVID world, that we have to think about how can we do, how can we build back differently and better and build more resilient resilience into our, um, our social and economic fabric. Alice Weiss is my understanding that you have a question from our resident analyst on the Politics Hour, Tom Sherwood. I do. Tom Sherwood asks, well, he's actually making a little bit of an observation, too, of course, because it's Tom Sherwood. He says, Walter Smith just said there are lots and lots of organizations in D.C. trying to help. And Tom wants to know, should some of these organizations be consolidated to better focus their services and use of funds? Basically, he's suggesting there are too many advocacy or too many uh, <laughs> organizations helping people in the city. Should they be consolidated? Walter Smith. Well, um, maybe. Um, but we're at a moment, I think, when all of the organizations that are there now are doing the best they can to step up to the plate, and they're all doing it in different ways. Um, and, you know, maybe at some future time when we can relax a little bit. Uh, I've heard what Tom is raising, uh, an idea I've heard lots of, a lot of times over the years, I'm sure Tony has as well, that if we were more systematic within the nonprofit community, um, that that we could better serve our community, um, and that may be true. But my opinion is this is not the moment to try to be doing that. But at the same time, and to me, this is the key point: everybody can be doing something now to try to help. Um, you can do wonderful stuff like I hear Fanny is doing. Uh, you can organize a neighborhood group that I heard Ali talk about going on. There's a lot of that going on. And you may be just one person, though, and you want to do something. Contact an organization. Contact your neighborhood. Go on the website that I've mentioned and see what you can contribute. I think this is the moment when everyone needs to be part of this great community of ours and do what you can to help. And speaking of the things that Fanny Lasky-Salazar has been doing, Ali Schweitzer has a tribute. This is from, this is great, this is from Micheline in Fairfax who just wants to give a shout out to Fanny who says, Fanny is one of the most selfless people that I have ever met. Uh, she has been a community angel for many years and has the capacity to mobilize the whole community on behalf of those who need support. I have known her for the past 15 years, and she has always been dedicated to the well-being of others. Good on you, Fanny, from Micheline. And that is precisely why Fanny came to our attention. Um, Tonya Wellens, there are state, local, and federal eviction moratoriums and protections, but will they end at some point, and how are you preparing for that day? They will end at uh, at some point. Uh, hopefully, not in the immediate future. Future, uh, but they will end at some point. There are a number of efforts underway now to plan for to plan for that future point. Uh, I think again, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take uh, um, landlords, um, tenants, local government, and um, to some extent, philanthropy in the private sector to uh, preserve affordable housing uh, in our region and to um, prevent the potential for thousands of, of people in our region to, um, to lose their homes. Uh, again, this, this is an unprecedented uh, situation that we're faced with. And we realize that everybody is impacted, but some people are impacted even more. So many landlords are suffering. 
Uh, fortunately, there have been there has been relief um, to uh, to landlords, to owners, and and in some instances to tenants. And so it's going to require all of us working this out uh, to prevent mass evictions in in the months ahead. I am a part of the mayor's uh, strike force that's considering that and really looking at, okay, how do we use the, the federal resources that are coming our way? How do we think about local resources? What will we need, you know, um, sort of landlords to do differently? Tenants who are able and uh, uh, have some availability to pay portion. And we're just gonna have to work it out. It's gonna require some uh, important, um, uh, negotiations uh, to prevent m- mass housing loss uh, and evictions in our in our region. Walter Smith, back to your partnership with Amazon. At the height of the pandemic over the summer, while millions were suffering, Amazon posted its highest profits in its 26-year history. They've also been criticized for how their workers were treated, with 20,000 employees contracting the virus over a six-month period. Were you at some point maybe reluctant to work with Amazon and to accept the help of the company? Well, actually, we weren't. Um, I think precisely for some of the reasons um, you have said, uh, Amazon has been trying to do more um, as a community citizen. As Tonya knows, um, there were contributions coming from Amazon to support a lot of the relief efforts here in this region um, and in other places. Um, and so I, I didn't want to say, we're not going to let you do this good thing to work with us on a website because you could have done more before. Um, it was good they were doing what they wanted to do, and I think what they have done with us and in other places um, are helping to meet the pandemic. Yes, they could do more. There are a lot of businesses out there that I think could be doing more, um, but I want to work with what I've got. Tony Wellen, some say that our governments have failed us, that we shouldn't have to rely on the private sector and the generosity of individuals and companies doing these unprecedented times. What would be your reaction to that? I would say that I'm not confident that that's a government-only failure. I think it's it's a bit of a systems failure across many systems. Uh, and the fact that we have allowed um, issues of systemic racism to persist for generations. And it shows up in how uh, people are paid it shows up in the healthcare access that is not available in communities. It shows up in food deserts. It shows up in education. It shows up in prison systems and it shows up in violence in communities. It shows up in a lack of mental health. And so these are, these are systems issues that are cut across uh, government, private sector, and even philanthropy. Ali Schweitzer. We have a question from Tanya in Tacoma Park, who's actually coming at it from the side of folks who who need assistance. And Tanya wants to know how people who are looking for assistance, what's the best way for, say, a resident of Tacoma Park, the city of Tacoma Park, to find a place to get rental assistance, to get direct cash assistance, to get food, to get clothing? Do you have any any good recommendations in that part of the in that part of the region? Tonya Wellens. Sure. I'd offer a couple of things. Of course, the Capital Area Food Bank is running uh, food pantries and food distribution across the entire region. Uh, In Montgomery County, we are working with the county government on an initiative called Food for Montgomery, where we're really looking at how do we connect both um, uh, restaurants, um, food distribution um, uh, providers, and meet the needs uh, alongside churches and communities of other communities of faith of people in Montgomery County, for example. Um, there are, I, w- I would start at the Capital Area Food Bank's uh, website when it comes to food and at the county level, looking at opportunities for, uh, for, for rental assistance, both at the, well, if you're in DC, you look at the city government's um, sites. And if you're in one of the surrounding jurisdictions, looking at the local jurisdiction site around rental assistance. Many of the county governments and local governments are partnering with nonprofits to, uh, to help to respond um, to, to the broad range of needs. And then there are numerous nonprofits and you can visit our website at thecommunityfoundation.org um, and look at the list of nonprofits that we are supporting who continue to do uh, amazing work uh, in responding to the needs of the community uh, across the region. Ali Schweitzer, a comment? Yeah, we have a tip from Andrea who says you can volunteer in your local neighborhoods by contacting your local senior village. 
Uh, you can help build community, serve your neighbors by helping them get groceries, drive them to doctor's appointments, help with technology, you know, change light bulbs. The 13 local villages throughout the DC community also offer virtual programming to socially engage older adults. This is a this is something that is regional. So anybody who's interested in learning more about villages, there's plenty of information about them online, and they are they are throughout our community. For everyone listening and wondering how to help their neighbor. What do you tell them? How can people help regardless of their financial situation? I'll start with you, Walter. There are a lot of neighborhood groups who have already been mentioned. I think that if you want to help in your neighborhood, um, there are m- most, uh, most neighborhoods have neighborhood groups organized. Um, most neighborhoods have not someone as good as Fannie, but someone like Fannie who is trying to do something in their neighborhood. Um, if what you want to do is just contribute to something, I, I, I do want to go back to, to uh, helping the frontline workers. Um, if you just want to make a donation, you can do that. You can make donations to a lot of nonprofits in this city um, who are uh, good at this. They know, how to, they know how to channel dollars. They know how to channel um, other in-kind um, contributions you might want to make. If you can offer services, if you can offer goods, if you can offer dollars, there are lots and lots of nonprofits in the city who do that every day for a living. And as Tony had said, the need remains great. Um, and if you want to volunteer, there are ways for you to do it. Fanny Lasky-Salazar, from what I understand, you have been helping people all your life. What drives you to do it? What drives you to help those in need? My dad inspired me to do that because my dad was a helping person. But I think so. sometimes, for me, I born with that. I think so I born with that. And, you know, having my family, my friends, they support me. Um, we can make the difference, you know. For me, was uh, when I moved here from New York, was uh, walking, walking in front of organizations close to me. And I was volunteer there. And after that, I met so many people in here in Northern Virginia, in Herdon and Redstone. And I continue volunteer for Cornerstone, she believed in me, or local organizations. So if you want to create a group, I create a group of what's up, what's up, for starting my family. And I invite everybody. So if, um, like I say, we can make the difference. We can create a group. If you being up there and you want to meet me, I'm here. We can create any groups. Uh, like, you have to have a heart. And remember, we are brothers and sisters, really. We we all in the same thing. We're going through so much right now. We can do this together. Tonya Wellens, for people who may not be able to afford it financially, what do you suggest about how they might nevertheless be able to help people? I think Fannie is a great example uh, of someone who has decided to use their own talents and gifts to help people who are in need. I think we should follow Fannie's example. Uh, Again, connect to your uh, community of faith um, or to your neighborhood association. I I always say you can start by checking on your next door neighbor, uh, particularly those who are elderly, um, you know, or, you know, par- young parents who might need a few hours uh, of a break from their kid who they might be homeschooling. I mean, it really is going back to old values of what it means to live in community and to be in relation uh, with each other. Uh, and so I'm just I'm excited by uh, that, even in the midst of so much, so much challenge that people are doing that. I'll mention very quickly on this, you know, are there too many things going on? And I agree with Walter. Uh, now is the time to lean in and do more where you can. Um, you know, most of the groups that are we're talking about are largely organized informally. And so um, that should persist for as long as it, as is needed and, and required and hopefully even beyond this pandemic. Uh, and nonprofit organizations are really just, you know, doing so much work. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to them and to their staff and their team members who've been working nonstop since, you know, since before March, but, you know, at a different pace since the pandemic began. Alice Weitzel, you have another comment. Yes, we do. We have just folks wanted to tell us more about what they're doing in their community. 
And uh, this is from Pamela, who says, in better times, the, the uh, WNBC Educational Foundation worked with a number of schools in D.C. In April, we learned that students and families in one of the schools were especially hard hit and many needed food. So we launched Food for D.C. Kids and have distributed more than 11,000 meals to needy students and their families. Thank you for that, Pamela. During recessions, things like the arts often get ignored or get their funding cut. Can you talk about what you're doing to prevent that from happening with the Arts Forward Fund? But the Arts Forward Fund was a, a partnership of uh, a number of uh, foundations, including Cape Ritz and Weisberg and um, a, a number of foundations who put in resources to shore up uh, small art houses that were, again, disproportionately impacted um, throughout throughout the region. And it was a million dollar fund. We we're expecting very soon to do another round of funding um, to support the arts and, and the arts community. There is not enough. Again, I think the arts community is one of the hardest hits. And, um, you know, we, we will do our best to, to do whatever we can to continue to support them. But, you know, it's going to be a, a bit of a, a while before we're able to return to the, the theater. Tonya Wellens is the president and CEO of the Greater Washington Community Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. And all the best, Fanny. Thanks for all that you do. And to you, Walter, as well. Walter Smith is the executive director of D.C. Apathy Center for Law and Justice. Walter, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I also would like to salute Tonya and Fanny. Wonderful people doing different things in different ways um, to, to help us all get through this crisis. Fanny Lasky-Salazar is a volunteer in Herndon, Virginia, and a patch local hero. Fanny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, and i see you next time. Don't invite me only one time. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. We've heard a lot tonight about how our communities have stepped up to help our neighbors in need. Let's hope we continue to look out for one another. Thank you all for showing up and participating. We hope you'll continue to engage with us on this topic via our social media channels. We'd like to say thank you to our wonderful engineers, the Kojo Show team, especially Inga-Lisa Schwarzdorf and Kurt Gardner, Yanlin Zhang and marketing and events, and to the rest of our colleagues at WMU for taking the show on the virtual road. We're especially grateful to WMU's Mana Kasfri and Diane Hockenberry for their support. And thanks to you all for joining us, and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.